talking about the spirit in man so far, and that God gave it to us, and we've seen in several scriptures here over a couple of sermons that that human spirit, as it is, can be manipulated, it can rise, it can fall, it can be uh, worked with to be discouraged or picked up. The greatest and deepest drive within humankind is to live. We have other drives and pushes, but to live is pretty well recognized as the greatest of all. And I think that God put that within us on purpose because our goal is eternal life. So He could have made some other things stronger in us than the will to live, but He made that one the strongest because it is the greatest achievement that we could ever have as a human is to attain eternal life. But among humans, even that greatest drive or purpose can even be defeated. Uh, It isn't a common thing. It's becoming more common that people's desire to die gets stronger than their desire to live. Hence, suicide occurs sometimes because things can be so bad in life and in attitude and the human spirit can be so depressed so abridged, so downcast, that it will give up even life. So that is pretty serious when it gets to that point. And people from time to time contemplate that, but far more infrequently they actually do it. And sometimes even when they try, they don't do it completely and they survive because they may have had mixed emotion there to some degree and weren't sure they wanted to do it, so they'll give it sort of a try and not make sure. I thought, boy, if I ever got to that point, I would want to be absolutely sure. I think I'd get by a big tree by a canyon and I'd put a rope around my neck and stand on something that teetered and shoot myself and hang myself, and if the limb broke, I'd fall in a canyon. I'd want to be sure I got the job done, you know. Uh, but people, when they're exasperated, frustrated, depressed, and so on, uh, don't think too clearly either. And uh, all kinds of things lead to that. So we're going to examine another element of this. I mentioned it briefly, at least, back in Genesis with Adam and Eve and how they were in a godly state of mind. Uh, everything was good. They could think of nothing but good. They did not even consider evil, didn't know what it was, until another power entered the scene. And we know that story, and I recounted it somewhat, so let's not go all the way back. But I want to pick up something here in chapter 3 of Genesis. Uh, Remember, their minds had changed once... Satan had his way with them. Verse 13, the eternal God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Well, wait a minute. I wanted to go up a little higher there. Uh, God asked Adam about it. 
asked him why he was naked. And he says, well, this woman you gave me handed it to me. So he didn't take the blame. He blamed it on the woman. Then God said to the woman, well, now, what have you done? And she didn't blame it on herself. She blamed it on the devil. So then God addresses the devil. And verse 14, he said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you're cursed above all cattle, and you'll be the lowest of the low and crawl on your belly. And of course, a snake is uh, symbolic of Satan, the great dragon, as God calls him in a few places. So he's talking to Satan, but... Uh, what is the thing on the earth that we probably are the most disgusted of and afraid of would be snakes. Some people, I suppose, spiders, but uh, uh, snakes are the most feared by most people. Anyway, he said to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, he said that to Satan, and then he said to the woman how he would punish her, and then to Adam how he would punish him. So when he spoke to Satan here about the enmity that would be between him and the woman, I think that he is using that particular thing to refer to the church, and to the seed of the church in a larger sense than just her as a woman. Because it says between your seed and her seed. Now, the seed of Satan became what? Those who would follow him. Christ told the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. So in that sense, on a spiritual level, he said the Pharisees were the seed or the sons of Satan. Seed, son, same thing. So, there would be enmity not only between a woman, physically, and Satan, because he doesn't mention a woman and man, and certainly there's just as much enmity between man and Satan as there is between the females and Satan. So I think that this is speaking more of the church and that which would come after than it was to Eve herself and her children, although Eve's children certainly were affected by Satan, and so has been everybody ever since. But there would be that enmity. Now, Romans 16 and verse 10 says that Christ is coming soon to bruise the head of Satan. So what's he coming to do? He's coming to take care of the problem that Satan has created for the woman, and bruise his head. Christ will work him over. And we'll see some scriptures on that. But uh, you shall bruise his heel. Woman and his at the same time in the scripture. So it's not just the woman itself, but something bigger than that. And to the woman then he gave a pronouncement of cursing and to Adam after that. So Satan is certainly involved here. Now let's look into this a bit and see some things that I think are important. I mentioned Job the other day and talked a little bit about him and what he went through there at the hands of Satan. But there's something in here I don't want us to miss. Uh, 
down in verse 7 of chapter 1, the Eternal said to Satan, Where do you come from? And he said, I've been going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down in it. So he goes all over the earth, walks around, uh, and does his thing here. And the Eternal said to Satan, uh, uh, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and hates evil? And notice that Satan does not answer this question directly. He's uh, like modern politicians. He beats around the bush in a way and doesn't give a direct answer. But he shows something here that is important for us to grasp. Satan answered the Eternal and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Now, what Satan is recognizing there is that, yes, I do know about him. <laughs> You've hedged him about so I can't get at him. You've blessed him. You've taken care of him. And I'm frustrated, is essentially his attitude, because of what you've done to him. So God had opened the, the, it with a question, and Satan makes it very clear, yes, I, I'm aware of him. He is aware of us, very much aware of us. If he was aware of, of Job, then he is aware of those whom God has also called out and those whom he has also hedged about. I want us to get that, that God is there to take care of us in spite of the fact that Satan is around. And God didn't reach forth his hand against Job when he was invited to by Satan, he says, no, you do the dirty work. Uh, just don't touch him. So he took away everything else, and then we went through this again, where Satan gave the same answer, well, you protected him. And then he says, all right, you can attack him, just don't kill him. And then's when he got all the boils and all that. So it was only with God's permission. I was going to save this for later, but I think I'll go ahead and inject it here. Uh, in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, uh, Christ said to Peter that he was subject to being sifted like wheat by Satan. Now, when you sift wheat, you can throw it up in the air and you sift the chaff, the chaff out in the dirt and everything else. And it's fairly easy to do. Uh, it's not a big effort that is required. But Christ then said to Peter, But I have prayed for you that this not happen. So Christ is there to hedge Peter about, and you would have to include us as well, since we are called as Peter was. It even says in uh, Zechariah 3 there about the Joshua there that Satan was standing at his right hand to make him his own. And yet it says that Christ said, the eternal rebuke you, Satan. So Christ was there again. That's a prophecy here for the current and future. That Satan would be there, standing at the right hand, just waiting. And I'm sure he was with Job. 
I was going to get him by the throat, but you hedged him about with Peter. He wanted to sift him because he knew he would be the leader of the early New Testament church. And Christ said, Peter, I've prayed for you. The Father will take care of this. So, just as in those cases, we need to realize that God is there who has the power over Satan, and he can only do what God allows. And that is the light, in the light of the Scripture that I was going to say that I think I'll throw in here anyway. And that's 2 Timothy 2.26. Where Let's go back and look at that one, because it's important to this context that we're currently talking about. 2 Timothy 2. Verse 26. Uh, verse 25. In meekness and telling Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy to instruct those that oppose themselves. Human beings often oppose themselves. They get in their own way. Our own drives, our desires, our lusts, our covetousness, our whatever, get in our way and it opposes whatever we're trying to do. So he says, help those that are living in opposition to themselves, destroying themselves because of human nature. If God, perhaps, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So out in the world, we oppose what God put us here for. We don't understand it. We don't go there. He says, maybe God will call them. Anyway, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Now, that's a scary phrase. That Satan takes the people of this world at his will. But they have no defense. They have no way to stop it. Now, through Christ's ministry, he often came across people who were demon-possessed or lunatic, as it says, throwing themselves in the fire, Satan causing them to do all kinds of destructive acts because he had taken them at his will. Now, some people are easier taken than others, perhaps, if they have uh, mental or emotional debilities or... Uh, or some habits, like too much drunkenness or drugs or whatever, that makes them not in control of their own mind, uh, at times Satan can get hold of them in times of greater vulnerability. So it may be the mind itself that isn't strong, or it may be uh, things they are doing that make it temporarily weak, but at his will indicates that pretty much he can control human beings. And he, Revelation 12.9 says that he deceives the whole world. So I think that echoes what Paul was saying here in Timothy, is that pretty much at his will, he can deceive any and everybody. And indeed, we all were deceived by Satan the devil. And it's only by the mercy of God that Paul was saying there, take care of these people and hopefully God will call them because they've been taken at Satan's will. We can all probably recount times in our lives where we wanted to do something, temptation was put before us, and and uh, we could stand anything but temptation. <laughs> you know, 
Uh, that's, that's our downfall. And Satan certainly knows how to tempt. He did a pretty good job in the Garden of Eden with people who did not know evil, did not know Satan, didn't know anything, and at his own will, just like that, as soon as the suggestion was made, they went his way. That shows how vulnerable we as human beings are to Satan and his devices. It's, it's kind of a scary proposition, isn't it? That we can be that easily snared and taken. Sometimes it's heavy influence, which he's got on the whole world, and sometimes he completely takes over an outright possession, which is when they were casting the demons out. So, God is very concerned about this, obviously. Leviticus 20 and verse 6, uh, he gives instruction through Moses. Uh, and the soul that turns after such as have familiar spirits and after wizards to go whoring after them, I we will set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. So God says, if we mess around with demons, we will be cut off from his people. Uh, verse 20, if a man shall... No, 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 that's not one of... Verse 20, 25. You shall therefore put difference... No, that's not what I want either. What did I write down here? Verse 27, okay. A man also or woman that has a familiar spirit or that is a wizard, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones, their blood shall be upon them. So he's making a very strong statement here that we're not to mess around with Satan and the demons. And I've seen people go to these little houses or places, which you can see along the street. Usually it's not in the best part of town, but sometimes it is too, uh, to have their fortunes told, or the tea leaves read, or whatever you want to say, and I've seen people get in serious, serious trouble from fooling around with people who can foretell your future, or tell you about yourself, or, or all those things, and God says, just stay away, don't go anywhere near it, and it isn't just on 3rd Street downtown, it's also... Uh, some of the leaders of the world are known as witches and going to covens and so on. And some of our prominent leaders in Washington have done such and actually are Luciferians and worship the devil openly. So it is a great danger. Uh, and in connection with that, consider Isaiah 8:19, Because it's a prophecy for right now. It's not just ancient history with, history with Israelites. But here he's talking about uh, our nation and the conspiracy against it that is coming and says, don't be afraid of it, be afraid of me. And part of the instruction here, when he says he'll give his people signs and wonders in verse 18, those who will dwell in Mount Zion, uh, they are going to be somehow confronted and told to go after demons. Verse 19. And when they shall say to you, Seek to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards that peep, and that mutter, should not a people seek to their God for the living to the dead? 
He says, if they don't speak according to this word and this testimony, there's no light in them. So that's a warning right here at the end time. I don't know exactly how it will be carried out or fulfilled, but at some point, the church of God and the people of God are going to be told to seek, not God, but Satan. Of course, when the beast and the false prophet come up, it says that even the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. So thinking about this in that uh, thought, uh, this could very easily show, be when the beast and the false prophet come on the scene and they do lying signs and wonders, because it says just above here that God is going to do signs and wonders. It says the same thing in Zechariah 3 and other places. But they will do great signs and lying wonders and miracles, the book of Revelation says, and that the whole world is going to be deceived by that. So they're going to be telling you, me, us, to turn to the beast and the false prophet and their miracles and their signs and their wonders. I hadn't thought of that up till now as to how this would be fulfilled, but that's probably what it's talking about. Because it will be advised to go there. And God says, don't go there. Uh, not on your life, <laughs> if you will. So he will be doing the same thing to the whole world that he did to Adam and Eve and we will be invited to be part of it. And he says, don't take the mark of the beast. Don't listen to what he says. They're signs and wonders, but they're lying signs and wonders. They don't come from God. Same thing happened with Moses and Aaron. Uh, the magicians and the wizards did lying signs and wonders, didn't they? And it had to be determined over a period of time which was which. So he says, if it isn't according to the law and the testimony, this word, the Bible, there's your key. Are they obeying God? Which day are they keeping? Uh, which holy days, holidays are they keeping? Uh, there's, there's a starter for you. Because they're going, to, they're going to insist on Sunday worship. So, you don't accept that. What is the Sabbath? It is a sign between God and His people. Sunday worship is a sign between Satan and his people. It's just that simple. So I think the fulfillment of this is specifically uh, outlined right there in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Let's go to Acts 5. And we'll see some places, though, where Satan does influence people who are in the church. Acts 5, <coughs> verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also knowing about it, and brought a percentage and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now notice what Peter said. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? Now how he knew, I don't know. But he obviously was aware somehow that they had sold it for so much and only brought so much when they'd been asked to bring it all. You know, God doesn't do that very often. In the Old Testament laws, He tells us to, to tithe. He gives us a financial guidance of what we're to do. And He tells us to bring offerings and with a cheerful heart. So we have an offering box over here. 
because that's what God says to do. Uh, but here, the apostles were asking them to bring everything they had because there was a drought. It wasn't that they were that God was promoting communism, uh, but there was a drought, and everybody wasn't eating. So he says, bring everything you've got, sell all your land, and let's put it in a pile, and we'll be sure that everybody gets food. And Satan got right to Ananias and Sapphira because their greed took over. And what did he play upon? Selfishness and greed. That is part of and innate to human nature. So Peter recognized that Satan guided their thoughts, put thoughts in their mind, and caused them not to do what the apostles had said. And they died. <laughs> they sought Satan a wizard that peeps and mutters instead of God and his apostles. So, we'd better be careful. Did God give the apostles that kind of power? That they could actually ask, not that you pay your tithes, all three, but give everything you have? Obviously, he did. Because he backed it up by striking two people dead. So under certain circumstances, that kind of power is invested in the ministry. Uh, we question the ministry now after worldwide on any and everything, don't we? Pretty much. And, and in a way had to, didn't we? Because of abuses and misuses that were there. And God pretty well struck down and destroyed that whole ministry, didn't he? So, if the ministry is not doing what they ought to do, God takes care of them. If the people are not doing what they should do, God takes care of them too. So, there is power there. It has to be used rightly. But what we have to recognize is that God is the one who has to take care of the ministry. It's not our job. And He is quite capable of doing so and will, and has. Anyway, let's not get off onto church government. Uh, that isn't the point here. The point is that Satan can act on the human spirit and the human mind and our baser desires and cause us all kinds of trouble. Uh, Acts 26 Acts 26. Uh, let's go down to... Where do I want to start here? Uh, here's where Paul is being called, and Christ is talking to him. And he, sold, he told him to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So, he was to go to them and help deliver them from the power of Satan. Now, Satan has power over the whole world. He is called the prince uh, of the power of the air. 
So he has power to broadcast. Herbert Armstrong used that some to explain the spirit in man and the fact that God can broadcast from his heaven on high thoughts into our minds. God can put thoughts in our minds. Don't we ask him to? Guide my thoughts. Help me. Guide my steps. We ask God by his power and we, we don't have a power cord that goes clear there. Uh, 12-2 would kind of run out of power time it got that far away. He has the power of the air. And we breathe air, and the spirit in man is likened to air which comes in and out. So God can broadcast to us through time and space through the air. And Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Now, we see it evidenced pretty easily, I think, through radio and television and various other types of use of the airwaves to broadcast. Well, if we can use these little machines that we make to do it, how much more so can Satan and his demons do the same thing, who have far more power and more understanding and influence than we have? So they can broadcast those thoughts into our minds. And that's why I was talking the other day about you need to recognize which is your own evil mind and that which is even bigger and worse than what you normally would think that comes directly from Satan who can inject that right into your mind. That's why we probably fairly often say the eternal rebuke you because I can... I mean, I have my own issues that I deal with, uh, attitudes, emotions, whatever, that I deal with. But sometimes I perceive that a thought that comes into my mind is directly from Satan. So immediately, the eternal rebuke you. We ask God to rebuke it if we recognize it. Now, the people out there in the world don't understand that that's coming from Satan. But we, through the Spirit of God, should be able to perceive and recognize when that's happening. And some are more perceptive of it than others. And I think those that have dealt with demons more uh, in others and with themselves are probably more perceptive of it. I knew ministers in Worldwide who wouldn't know a demon if they saw him sitting on the end of the bed. Uh, but others were pretty perceptive of it and and could read when they were around, maybe not always, but uh, certainly some are more perceptive than others, and we as human beings are that way. But if you sense that Satan is lurking about and putting thoughts into your mind, you should rebuke him. Now, you're not strong as Satan, and you telling Satan to go away uh, doesn't do much good. But if he is afraid of Christ and the power of God, I was going to a scripture to that. Maybe I should go there now. Uh, even in this one somewhere in there, it talks about Paul and, and his concern, I think, about Satan. But Oh, here, this is Acts 19, uh, verse 13. 19... Verse 13, Then certain of, uh, of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, they 
looked upon themselves as being able to cast out demons. And even the Catholics have exorcists, those who are supposed to cast out demons. Uh, Christ commented on that, says, well, is it any big deal that Satan cast out Satan? Uh, demons have different powers. Some are more powerful than others, and were created that way. And Satan can cast out Satan. A uh, more powerful demon can tell others to go away. He said, that's no big deal. Anyway, these exorcists, exorcists took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now, they didn't know Christ. They just saw him doing this and thought, Well, we'll use that name too. This ought to be pretty good for our business. And there were seven sons of one Siva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> uh, they recognize certain power, and other powers they won't pay any attention to. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So the demon attacked so severely that they lost all their clothes and they were wounded and barely got out with their lives, apparently. So you need to be careful <laughs> when you go to put Satan out and be sure you use the name of Emmanuel the King or Jesus the Christ at whatever terms you use. And we use Emmanuel now, but I can remember in the past having called upon the name of Jesus Christ and had demons leave out of people and leave when they were bothering me. So I know that he recognizes that name and they do too. It's just that Emmanuel is somewhat of an upgrade for those of us in the end time not only is he salvation, which is what Jesus means, but uh, God with us is what Emmanuel means. He's not just salvation as a, a premise, but he is with those at the end. Comes and dwells with them, he says in Zechariah 2. So Emmanuel is something that, right there in Matthew 4, it said, You shall call his name Jesus, but they will call his name Emmanuel. Uh, so that is the upgrade that we are looking for, is that he come and be with us and dwell with us and look over us when Satan is taking control of the world in a far more formal way than he has in the past. He's already deceived it all, but here in the end, it's going to come in a very dramatic fashion with the beast and the false prophet, and they'll control all commerce, and if you don't take the mark of the beast and worship on Sunday, you don't eat and you don't buy anything. Your credit card won't work. Uh, it's just the way it's going to be. So we better know that we know Christ. And there are people sometimes who try to take on the responsibilities that God gave to the ministry. Remember he there in Mark 6, verse 7, I think it is, uh, he gave the disciples power over unclean spirits to cast them out. But there's no place where it says that he gave every person in the church power to do that. Well, you better be careful if you go up 
to try to do something that you have not been authorized to do. Whether it's baptism, whether it's laying on of hands, whether it's anointing, whether it's casting out demons, you better know whereof you speak. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that we cannot ask Christ to rebuke Satan uh, when he attacks us, or perhaps attacks our children, or so on. We know that his presence is there. We certainly have the authority as a human being and as a Christian, because that's what Christ said. The eternal rebuke you, Satan, is what he told us to do. So we all should have a certain power over demons. But we'd better be careful in how we use that because of the experience of these seven who were not authorized. And the demon said, hey, I don't know you. And then attacked them. So we need to be careful. And yet, on the other hand, we have the authority to rebuke Satan when we recognize or perceive that he's around. And God will honor that. I've seen it happen many, many, many times. I've experienced it many times. So, he will hedge us about to a certain degree. But recognize Matthew 4. Uh, I won't go back there and read it for sake of time, but there's where Christ fasted 40 days and 40 nights before he was directly tempted of not just a demon, but by Satan himself. And Satan used every guile he could think of, twisted scripture, uh, so we know that Satan knows the Bible. I'm sure he knows every word of it. He's got a better mind or a greater capacity than we do. So he knows every verse that's in here. Uh, he doesn't have to look it up like we do. He knows it all. But he also is a deceiver and a twister of scripture. And that's what he did with Christ. He would twist it, hoping to play on Christ's weakness after having fasted 40 days. Well, he was very weak physically, but spiritually, he was stronger than as he had ever been. Because the fasting helped get him closer to God, so his spiritual strength was there, even though the physical weakness was. So Satan tried to play on his physical weakness, knowing he couldn't attack him on a spiritual level, Christ being Christ. So he played on that which was the weakest element at the moment. How can? Because he wanted to be the in, not just prince of the power of the air, prince of the earth. He wanted to be king of kings and lord of lords. So he needed to defeat Christ in order to achieve that goal. So he considered the circumstance. Satan didn't tell Christ to fast 40 days. Christ fasted 40 days knowing he was going to be within the greatest trial of his period of time here on the earth as a human being. And he needed to be as close to the Father as he could before that transpired. So that's why he fasted. But Satan's sitting back looking at it and saying, yeah. He hasn't sinned. I haven't been able to get him to sin. And I've tried. But here's his weakness. He hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. I'll get him. So he began to think of scriptures about food <laughs> and about power. Things that he might be able to tempt him on in his physically weakened state. 
And Christ was able to defeat him because of his spiritual strength. We will see here in a few scriptures that we have the same thing available to us that Christ had there. Uh, but there was Satan, a Bible-thumping, scripture-quoting deceiver. Now, Paul told the congregation in 1 Corinthians 5 that because this guy who was apparently committing incest and so on and was proud of it, that uh, he would turn him over to Satan the devil for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the long run. Uh, Satan, I mean, Paul recognized that it is our trials and troubles in the flesh that will cause us ultimately to turn to God. So he said, I'm going to turn this guy who is sinning over to the devil. Now, isn't that what God did with Job? Turned him over to the devil. So, Paul had that authority to say that. I'm putting him out of the church. He will not have access to the Spirit of God. He will be subject to Satan and the destruction of the flesh in hopes that he would repent and come under the spirit and power of God instead of the spirit and power of the human spirit and Satan's spirit. And it worked. Second Corinthians, he says, this man's repented, now you guys should receive him back. And by then, they said, oh no, he was a big sinner and you kicked him out, now we're not having him back. So he had to chew them out for that. Hey, if somebody repents, you forgive them, you welcome them back. I heard one of our neighbors here and said, well, Daryl will never forgive me. Where'd she get that idea? All she's got to do is repent. Sign her to land back over to the church. Go back on a lease. Quit rebelling against God and His government and His church and His people, you, whom they're trying to take your land away from you. All they got to do is Repent sincerely, from the heart, as shown by the fruits. I got no problem with that. Did the man have problems with his prodigal son, who had turned against his father in every way, and it's a, it's a direct representation of God in us, when he found himself eating with the pigs and realized there's something terribly wrong here, I think I'll turn to my father and home. And when he did, his father rejoiced and celebrated so much, the elder son, who had been obedient, said, wait a minute. <laughs> He's a sinner. Well, that son needed to repent too. No, if there's true repentance, we are obligated by Scripture to forgive and move on and accept them back. Got a good example right, of, right here with Paul and the incestuous situation. First uh, Corinthians seven. I won't go, but there it's it's talking to married people and uh, how they should not defraud each other in the physical relationship between husband and wife, because Satan might be able to tempt in that circumstance. If you're not getting something at home, you might go elsewhere. So he says, 
And it's talking about fasting and praying. Because people have used this excuse and that excuse. Well, I have a headache, or I'm not feeling well, or whatever. Uh, and then, oh, well, I can use fasting and prayer and get out of this. I don't know how long you can fast, but <laughs> nevertheless, uh, God said, all right, that's a valid reason for not having a physical relationship in the marriage, but do your fasting and your praying, and then come back together, lest Satan tempt you because of the physical desires that are there. So, Satan will use anything. In the relationship between a man and a wife in a marriage, uh, he'll jump on that and disturb and destroy the marriage and your spiritual standing with God, if at all possible. So every part of our life we have to be careful of because Satan will get in there anywhere he can. This is just one more example of that. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, he says, We are not ignorant of Satan's devices. Look at the subtlety that he used with Adam and Eve and the deception and twisting he used with Christ. Uh, and all these examples show how he was able to use our human nature against us. Galatians 6 talks about the works of the flesh in names lying and cheating and stealing and adultery and uh, all the things that human beings do that are contrary to God. And those are things that are in our nature that got exposed in the Garden of Eden. And anywhere we have a selfish desire of any kind, Satan just looks for those things so that he can take us at his will. And that's why we have Christ as our Redeemer and the forgiveness of sin and the power of God to stand up against the power of Satan. But it's a very real power. Just as you have a spirit in you that is not an evil spirit, uh, your human nature is evil, yes. So you might say it's an evil spirit in a way. Deceitful and desperately wicked, who can know it? So the spirit in man has been compromised from the Garden of Eden right on down. And to this day, he deceives the whole world and takes them at his will. But thankfully, we have God who can hedge us about, who can protect us, Christ who can intercede and, or intervene and be a mediator for us, that he might yet pray for us to the Father that Satan not take us, or to rebuke Satan from us, and we don't even know it. Doesn't it say that the Spirit when we don't even know what to pray, will intercede and groan for us, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father, is yearning and groaning for us and trying to get us to accept the power of God instead of succumb to the power of Satan and our own human nature. So it's not that we don't have power against his devices. It's there. And... Another of his devices is Second uh, Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15, where it says he can appear as an angel of light. And that even his ministers, his demons, can be transformed into ministers of light. So you can, some people even in the church, get turned a bit sideways and they start listening to these 
worldly preachers. Well, they don't preach the truth. They don't preach the doctrine. And what did John say? Apostle John. He says, if they speak not this word and they're not of us, don't receive them into your house. Don't bid them Godspeed. Don't say, God, be with you. Some of these Protestants come around and say, oh, God, be with you. I'm not going to tell them that back. And I'm not going to allow them in my house. By television, by radio, by any kind of recording, God says to stay away from them because they are ministers of Satan, the devil, that appear as angels of light, and you think, well, I can get something from this. Well, yeah, you might get something, all right, and it may not be what you need, because they're not speaking the truth. They probably worship on Sunday. They keep Christmas and Easter. They're like the Pharisees of their father, the devil. They worship. They know not what. And if you listen to them, then you're exposing yourself to you know not what. So don't be deceived and think you can listen to worldly ministers and get some gems of truth or some inspiration. It's the wrong kind of inspiration. And it can kill you. We must be very careful of that. When I'm on the Internet reading alternative media and news, the minute I see one that says, well, somebody had a dream and prophesied. They had a dream from the Lord, and they seem to a lot of them have it. I don't read that one. I do not watch the video. I want to be careful not to get involved with wizards who peep and mutter. Because if they are Protestants and they have had a vision or a dream, then I highly question that vision or dream and I don't know, I don't want whatever they prophesy even in my head. <coughs> I want what God says in my head from this book. That's what he tells us there in Isaiah 8, which we already covered. If it's not according to this law and this testimony, and that preacher you're listening to on the radio or TV probably also says the law is done away with. It's not according to the law and the testimony. We'd better be careful. And I've known of people in the church that listen to some of those preachers and even a woman preacher they were listening to at one time I heard of. Well, God, Paul very clearly forbids that. So, you know, where do we come off with this kind of stuff? We're just not aware, maybe. We're, we're not clear. Well, I hope I'm making it clear. I hope these scriptures are making it clear. Don't listen to these that have a, are satanic but appears angels of light. Oh, there's a lot of inspiration there. Oh, okay, well, I want my inspiration from God Himself. Uh, I've already talked about signs and wonders. It says there'll be somebody in Second Thessalonians 2, 9, even in the church, who can do that. Stands in the temple of God. There is one little, let's see, I've got some time here. Let's go to Isaiah 14. I, I have re-looked at a scripture here that I think we need to consider. Uh, here in Isaiah 14, it's talking about the king of Babylon, who of course is Satan. He is the author of confusion. God is not. And he is the one who is the present evil ruler of this world. So uh, he is the king of the Babylonian system of the world overall. 
and it refers to him as the king of Babylon here, calls him the prince of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, which is a parallel scripture to this. Uh, but in verse 12 here, he says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Now, Frank Melfi, I think, is the one that I first heard this from, who said that the word here is Hellel in the Hebrew. It's not Lucifer. Uh, and that Lucifer is not a name for Satan. Now, I'm not so sure we can make that statement. I kind of bought it for a while because Christ is the light bringer, and Lucifer, you strike a match, uh, uh, it's called a Lucifer, it makes light. Now, Christ is the ultimate light bringer, and Satan is of darkness. But that has not always been the case. And here he's talking about the past. Uh, because the, the whole premise here was that Lucifer is, should be the name of Christ as the light bringer, not of Satan. Yes, Hebrew does say Hellel, and Hellel uh, means light or brightness uh, and words of that effect. But let's look at it a little bit. <clears throat> Is speaking about uh, Israel up here and the king of Babylon. And it talks in verse 11 about your pomp is brought down to the grave and the noise of your vials. The worm is spread under you and the worms cover you. And then he says, how are you fallen from heaven? So it's not speaking of an actual physical king of Babylon. It has to be speaking of the dragon who was cast down. O Lucifer, son of the morning. What happens in the morning? Sun comes up. Satan was a bringer of light. He was a son of the morning. He's not now. He's a minister of darkness. But he used to be the son of the morning. What does he want people to worship? The sun. He's not anymore, brightness, but he used to be. So they want, he wants us to worship him in the light of what he used to be. The sun comes up, light appears. Son of the morning. How are you cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, and so on, and take your place. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds and be like the Most High. And then he says that he'll be brought down. So there he's called uh, the Son of the Morning. Let's go to Ezekiel 28 and see this further explained. Uh, verse 14, no, let's go on up a little bit. Uh, Verse 11, the word of the eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the eternal God, You sealed up the sum, uh, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You've been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, gold. Those are all shiny, aren't they? 
Those are really bright and shiny. They'll be in the kingdom of God, the gold and the, and the uh, gemstones. That's where Satan was. He shone like all those things. You are the anointed cherub that covers. So he was there covering the throne of God. And I've set you so. You are upon the holy mountain of God, right there at the throne of God. You've walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Lucifer. Fire stick. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. By the multitude of your merchandise, you filled the midst of you with violence, and you have sinned, and you'll be cast out. Now, notice this, your, verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. He was beautiful. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. It was called son of the morning. Now he's called, it says he was corrupted because of his brightness. Light. Brightness. I don't know that Lucifer is all that bad a name for Satan. Now, then Isaiah 14 is the only place in the Bible that Lucifer is mentioned. Now, the Hebrew word is Hillel, which means brightness or light, basically. So, all the King James uh, translators did was come up with a word in English that typified the brightness of Hillel. Now, God might not have called him Lucifer in English. But he called him brightness, Hillel. So I've always I I, I kind of understood where Frank was coming from, and I kind of bought into it. But having examined this again carefully this morning, because someone brought it up as a question uh, recently, so I, I took another look at it, and I think I would be afraid to call Christ Lucifer. <laughs> that uh, it doesn't fit anything I've ever believed or taught. And I think I'm kind of walking a thin line there in my own mind and conscience uh, to do that. And having examined this again, for King James people to have translated brightness into the flaming up of a, of a match, which we call a Lucifer, or some people do, I haven't, but some people do. But brightness is what the Hebrew says, or son of the morning. So he was, at one time, a bringer of light, just as Christ is now the bringer of light. So the name at that time fit, he who became Satan who fell from that light into darkness. So wherever it is on those tapes back there, when I bought into that, uh, I, I think I am on the other side of that fence now. Uh, it's just a translation of brightness and son of the morning. So, I'm not going to call Christ Lucifer. I, I guess I never really have, but I've said that maybe that is the name of Christ uh, that's here. No, I don't think so after, after thinking it through. I, I think that's false teaching and false doctrine. And I would certainly not want to call Christ a name of Satan. Well, I, I think I would be very, very, very careful of this one. Uh, Frank sometimes gets off base on calendars or or whatever. Uh, and we all can get off base. And hey, I looked at this and I got off base with it. 
So, I'm sorry. I apologize. I led you wrong. But I think we just got it straightened out. So, let's, uh, let's deep six that one. Or 86 it or whatever you want to do. Get rid of it. All right. Enough of that then. <clears throat> but we, but he apparently was, uh, there were apparently three archangels. He was a cherub that covered, and it still mentions Michael and Gabriel as being righteous, but Revelation 12 says that he drew a third of the angels with him when he went. So apparently, and that's where we get that, he took a, he deceived a third because he was over that third. Uh, they were the archangels over the rest of the angels, and one-third went with... And where did we get the Trinity? Satan was part of a Trinity, or Lucifer, the Lightbringer was part of a Trinity. And uh, he was cast, or, or himself fell from that. So he would like to think of the Father and the Son in him as a Trinity. That introduces our thinking that Satan is the same as God. That's what he's after. And now he's going to make one more last-ditch attempt to take over the throne of God here at the end. Well, at the end of the thousand years, he's also going to make another one. He gets two, two more shots at it, according to Revelation 20. And he's going to fail. Okay, let's go on. Uh, I'll use a little more time remaining here. Uh, let's go to Ephesians 6. Realizing the human state and our vulnerability to Satan, that he is able to enact upon and influence and even take over the spirit in man, our mind, our attitude, our emotions, our feelings, everything, at his will, unless we have some way to prevent that. Uh, let's not go out of here today unarmed. So Ephesians 6, he says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the eternal and in the power of his might. Not the power of Satan, which can take us over like it did with Ananias and Sapphira and cause their death. I think that example is in there for a very good reason. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He has all kinds of devices and wily ways, sly ways, uh, kind ways, mean ways, cantankerous ways, any, any emotion you want to name, any attitude... He can take on, even of righteousness, so that he can do lying signs and wonders in the name of righteousness and deceive the whole world into worshiping not just the beast and the false prophet, but worship him. Because Revelation says, and I may not get there today, that they actually worship the dragon. You follow those whom God has appointed, and through their influence, it helps you worship the true God. You follow those whom Satan has appointed, and through their influence, you wind up worshiping the false God. Another reason 
not to listen to the ministers of this world. Don't allow them in your house. How clear can that get? The Apostle John knew what he was talking about. They didn't have radio and TV then, so we'd say, well, that just means don't let the Jehovah's Witnesses in the door. No, they come in other ways. <laughs> I told about the Jehovah's Witnesses the other day. He said, uh, these Jehovah's Witnesses went to the door, and somebody opened the door, and, and they said who they were, and they invited them in. And they came in, they sat down on the couch, and the guy says, well, what do you want to talk about? They says, well, I, really, I don't know. I've never gotten this far before. <laughs> so don't let them in. Don't let them get that far. <laughs> Whoever they are. Anyway, let's be serious here. Well, that is serious, but in a, levi- a way of levity. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's not our real battle but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, Satan and his demons. This is where our real battle is. Our human nature is one battle. But even more powerful than that is that power of the air that has the power to influence the spirit in man. So then he tells us what to do. Take to you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in that day, evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now we are to stand for what we believe. We are to stand up for God, to stand up for faith, to stand up for obedience. So we are to have the power of God to be able to stand against that which Satan can lay upon us. We're helpless otherwise. The the whole world is helpless before Satan. He's already gotten the job done, deceived the whole world. They're helpless. He's deceived them at his own will. Now, Paul is saying, don't go there. You call on God so he can't do that. I'll pray for you, Peter, so he can't sift you. I'll hedge you about, Job, so he can't attack you until it's according to my purpose. So having done all... To stand. We have our part in this, taking on the whole armor of God. So he says, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Truth is the first defense against Satan. Now what did he try to use against Christ? A twisted, partial truth. Actually an untruth. But it had enough truth about it that you might be deceived thereby. So, you better know the truth. That's the first defense. Having the breastplate of righteousness. All right, you know the truth. And then you have over your chest the breastplate. Uh, If you're going to kill something, usually the first shot is to the heart and lungs. I mean... Whether it's with a bow and arrow or a gun or a knife, that's where you go. Heart and lungs. <clears throat> Satan will go to our most vulnerable place. Breastplate of righteousness. So have the truth and live righteously. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We ask God to guide our steps, to not let us get off the path. 
what he's talking about. Be close to God so that you don't wander off the trail and into the wrong place. Have the gospel of peace there. Now, Satan is about to stir up an awful lot of war and convince the world through war and confusion that if you'll just follow me, then your money will work and you can buy food and everything will be good. You'll have peace, plenty, and prosperity if you'll just take my seal and whatever it is, biometrics where you wave your hand or point your head at the counter and you pay. If you don't accept that, no pay. The gospel of peace. Satan is going to create enough confusion that people are going to run to him for security. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. What is faith? Trust in God. The greatest protection we can have is believing that Christ can hedge us about. He can pray for us that Satan not uh, get to us or sift us. That he will rebuke Satan from us. That's what he's going to try to do. It's not just Joshua there in Zechariah 3. It's the whole people of God, 10% of the church that he draws to build the temple. It's all of us that he has to rebuke Satan from in order to protect us from the beast and the false prophet and Satan himself. He's not talking to one person there. He's talking to all of us. The, the person represents the church as high priest. So it's us that Satan is standing against. What's he going to do when he's first cast down from heaven? He's up there accusing us every day right now. Everyone here, what's your name? He knew Job. <laughs> do you have, have you considered my servant Job? Do you know him? You won't let me get near him. He knew who he was. And when he's cast down, he is going to immediately come after the church. Revelation 12, go read it. He's going to know every one of us. And we need to believe with the helmet, I mean the, uh, the shield of faith, that God can protect us and hedge us about from Satan the devil. Because he's going to come after us. Tooth and toenail. And when we are taken to safety, hopefully we are considered worthy to do that. Then he's going to go after the 90% that are left behind. And he will kill them all in the tribulation. He will kill them until there's no light left shining anywhere on the earth except from Zion. As weak as that signal might be from somebody who is not really as close to God as he should have been and did not get counted worthy to escape all these things, any bit of light he can see in a darkened world. And he'll have no trouble finding the remnant of her seed and destroying them. Daniel 11 talks about how he has the power to do that. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Count on salvation. Look to salvation. Look to eternal life. Satan wants to kill you. Keep your eyes on eternal life and what God can give us not the death that Satan offers us. But he's very deceptive because he's going to offer us physical life through being able to, to buy and sell. 
And we say, no, I want spiritual life. So take the helmet of salvation. Never forget what we're here for. And that's that our spirit be changed into the spirit of God, transformed so that we're no longer just a spirit in man. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit of God, and watching thereto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So he says, stay in prayer, and don't just pray for yourself, pray for all the saints, that we might withstand what Satan is about to throw at us. He's thrown things at us through our lives already. He's thrown things at the world and deceived the whole thing. And the only reason you're sitting here understanding truth and hearing this is because God called you out of the world and began to hedge your mind against Satan so that you could understand and follow the truth and fulfill your purpose here. So he's telling us, you're vulnerable and he can have you if you don't have the armor of God and God protecting you from Satan. He's far more powerful than we are. So arm yourselves for the battle ahead.